You're listening to audio from Grace Hills Church in Aliso Viejo, California. For more information, visit us online at gracehills.com. Amen. Good morning, church. How we doing? Good. Well, I got a couple answers. That'll work. I'll take what I can get. Uh, I will say this: uh, the deaconesses, what they do, I really call it the heavy lifting of the church. It's it's the one-on-one. It's the personal relationships. The things that we all desire deep in life, but sometimes are too afraid to ask. Uh, we all need to have connections in the church. If you are looking for that, there, I cannot. I cannot talk about a better place that you would get plugged in. So please reach out to her. Don't let the enemy lie to you and say, well, that's not for me, because it probably is. So um, I like to talk about my life because I like to not get in trouble by talking about other people's lives. So I'm just going to keep doing that. Uh, I was not good in high school. Uh, I did very poorly. My academics were not great. I think at one point I had a 1.2 GPA. You're like, and I'm your pastor. Here we go. Um, <laughs> Shouldn't have said that. But uh, that's the reality of it. So when I finished high school, I'm like, praise the Lord. And then you go to junior college, which is high school with cigarettes. So you go there. And I did that. And then I failed those classes too. And I was quickly figuring out, I am not good at school. I need to find something as a young man because there's this young lady I was dating that I really wanted to marry. And her dad kept saying no until I got a job. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to become a cop. I think it was one of these kind of ideas. I'm like, I'm going to be a cop. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and become a police officer. I'm going to get good retirement. I get to drive fast cars. I don't get tickets anymore because I got a lot of those. It all makes sense. I had a great plan. And so my friend said, hey, why don't you go through the Reserve Academy? Because if you go through the Reserve Academy, it's, it gets you into the regular academy a little bit quicker because you've got some experience. I'm like, Great idea, told Annette. She was less than thrilled about my newfound plan. And uh, I went there, and it was super fun. I was going five days a week in the evenings. Uh, I was doing all the training. I was, I was acing every single aspect of this role that I was really excited about going into. And then um, like, it got to this point where I realized that I have this kryptonite. And, and everyone's got a little kryptonite in their life. Mine is writing. It, when it comes to writing, if you've ever gotten a letter from me, a birthday card, you're like, oh, it looks like a child wrote for him. That's just me. That's how I write. I write very small, easy to read words because I don't spell well. I have bad punctuation. It's horrible. Well, what I didn't realize as a police officer, it's not just racing cars and jumping bridges and hanging on to helicopter landing gears. Apparently, the entire job revolves around writing reports all the time. And I didn't think about that. So when I went to the academy, uh, I remember there was this one afternoon and the, uh, the head of the school came and said, hey, Simon, we'd love to talk with you. I said, oh, that'd be great. So we sat down and said, you are doing so well. Everything you're doing is fantastic. We are so thrilled with you to be here. But then he said this next phrase, but you can't write. It wasn't that you're not that good or you could use improvement. It's just you can't. And I went, oh, And he said, so we tried to look at it a bunch of different ways, but the reality is you're being removed from the program. And I'm like, oh, that's not what I thought was going to happen here. And I remember I went home and I was very, I like like all the sympathy I'm getting is so great right now. (laughs) You poor thing. (laughs) And I was so frustrated. Why? I had a plan. I knew what I was going to do. I had it all mapped out, even despite the fact that the woman I was dating was like, I think this is not a good idea, and I don't want you to, but I'm going to be supportive because I'm trying to be supportive. And so I didn't get it, and I was so mad. 
because I thought I knew what I needed to do. I thought I knew that I had something. And I'll tell you, it took a while to work through that frustration of not getting to the place that I wanted to go. Now, why, why do I bring this story up? Because James, in these short verses, these five verses that we're going to cover today, is going to explain a couple of things. He's going to explain our position in the universe is really what he's going to do. And how presumptuous we are as human beings and how we view time and the world and God and ourselves and how we forget who God actually is. And we forget that he is sovereign over all things. And that's what James wants to talk about. So if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn to James chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the seats in front of you. Those are brand new. If you don't own one, we would just say take it as a gift. We'd love for you to have God's word that you can read and know. You can listen to me or follow along on the screen. Here we go. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a place, uh, such and such a town, and spend a year there and make trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let's go ahead and pray and then jump into this. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would press on us this morning. As we talk about how we make plans, how we spend our time, if we truly call ourselves followers of you, that our life would reflect that in every aspect where we need to be convicted, I ask that we would joyfully receive that, knowing that you are actively working in our hearts. Where you are moving in our lives and rearranging the structure of how we live, I ask that we would praise you and lift you up. If there's any things in my notes or in my head that are not from you that would be a distraction to the truth of the gospel and your word, I ask that you would remove that from me and that you would go before me as you speak to the men and women that are here today. We love you. We pray this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. So James is going to dive into a couple of things, and he wants us to understand how we view time, and the other is how we view ourselves, and how these two things are actually interconnected in what we do and what we say and how we live, and actually how we plan for the future. Now, at first glance, it can seem that James is really anti-planning, anti-being prepared. And and I mean, we plan all the time, right? We plan what we're going to eat. We plan where we're going to go to church. We plan where we're going to live. We plan what careers we're going to have, who we're going to marry. All these things revolve around planning. And you're like, well, is he just anti-planning? Well, no, he's actually not. The Bible is really kind of pro about having a good approach about how you would live your life and what you would do with your life. Some verses that kind of uh, reflect that would be Ecclesiastes 9, 9 through 10 or Colossians 3, 23 through 24 and Proverbs 12, 11. All these point the idea that planning is not a bad thing and it's okay to plan for the future. Much of what James has been pointing to over this extent of time that we've been in the book of James is that how things are interconnected. He says, if you are a Christian, 
then you will talk this way. If you are a Christian, you will act this way. You will live this way. You'll have wisdom this way. He keeps talking about if you say you follow and love Jesus, your life is going to start playing out in all these ways. And he's going to keep moving into that. And he's going to connect this idea of if you say you're a believer, you will plan your life differently. And it's connected to the pride of man and the sovereignty of God and what we do with our lives. The first point is the plans that we make and the position, our position in the universe. Now, James has been kind of teasing this out as he's gotten to this point. And we talked a little bit about in 4.10 where he says that you need to be humble, kind of this idea of like how we approach God. And then in verse 12, he kind of asks the question, like, who do you think you are as if you could judge someone and take God's position? So he's slowly been moving this thread to think about those ideas. Now, he's speaking mostly to trade merchants at this time that would go and they would make trades all throughout the land. And so they would go, they think their boats, they'd take goods and surpluses and they'd move around. And so it wasn't uncommon for them to go, well, we're going to buy this and we're going to go there and we're going to do these things. But he knows his audience, so he's talking to them so they would understand what he's talking about. But it doesn't just solely pertain to business. That's not all it's talking about. Actually, next week he's going to address business and wealth and what we do with that. And so if you really want to know that, come back the next week. And if you don't want to hear about that, just don't come back next week and you won't have to hear it. But it still pertains to you. So the first is our view of the future. Um, at the heart of a lot of this is that there's this presumption that we're in control. That, that's really where it kind of falls at, that, that we make lists, we do things, and that we're in control. And if you look at just that first verse as you say, he starts listing off all the things that you actually believe that you're in control of. Time, actions, places, what to do that will actually have uh, success. How, how do you spend your time during the day? Where are you going? What are you doing? Who will you interact with? I'll go here. I'll go there. And I love that it's like there's this presumption of, and of course I'll be successful. Like, yo, you're going to make a profit just because you decided you wanted to do something. It's this lie that we start telling ourselves. Like, it's... It's a faulty way of thinking when you start to do this. We, we don't know the future. Have you thought about that? Like, we don't know what the future holds. We don't, we don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Now, we can guess and we can, you know, think and be close to it, but we just don't know. Anything can happen. I say this uh, phrase from time to time, you are only promised today. There are no guarantees for tomorrow. And I even follow up sometimes by saying, and we're not even guaranteed all of this day. You have where you are right now, where God's called you to be. We just don't know. I, I, do you, man, I was gonna, I'm asked this question, but have you ever thought about dying? Like, <laughs> yeah, we do, right? We think about death at times. Do you ever think that you might go to bed and you might not wake up on this side of eternity? That's kind of how I want to go. You ever think like driving in your car? I, I just, the fact that we can drive cars and not all be dead is amazing. Like, do you realize we're driving these two-ton vehicles and the only thing that we're putting faith in is a yellow strip of paint on the ground that's stopping someone from going, no. Like, that's all it is. We don't know. It could be going to school or anywhere, but yet we believe that we're gonna be okay. I did a study. Do you know that over 4,000 people die from choking on food every year? 
Most of that's like Jolly Ranchers and candy. Let that be a lesson to you if you like Jolly Ranchers and candy. It's like you just don't know. We're, we're more fragile than we think, right? There's only one being who knows the future. There's only one that knows exactly what's going to happen tomorrow and the next day and for eternity. Hint, it's not you, it's God. He is the one who actually knows what's happening. See, the fact that we're not in control is something that we constantly try to forget all the time. At times, our planning can be this false sense of security or this false sense of control letting us think that we're the ones steering the ship of life. And James is trying to build out this point that you don't understand how life works. You don't even know when it ends. And it's, it's interesting as you start to watch like what's happening in culture and society, like we want to be in so control. Like there's, and there's two like polar opposite ideas of what this looks like when it comes to life and control. At the beginning of it, we have this huge debate about abortion and where that's at, that we decide when we're pregnant, we decide when life starts, we decide when life ends when it comes to babies and newborns. We, we, we just, we're going to do that. But there's this other new bizarre thing that's really starting to take steam. Do you know what it is? End of life, euthanasia. Like, I decide when I'm done. I decide when I'm not going to live anymore, when I think that I'm at my time. And so there's this sense of control on either aspect where we think that, well, we can do what we want because we're the captains of our ship. And I don't care how much you doll it up with doctor's notes saying that you can die, you're still just committing suicide and acting like you are God. That is what you're doing in those moments. See, the second point is that our, it's about our view of ourselves. Now, I'll share about myself because it's easier that way, but we're pretty self-absorbed people, myself included. We spend so much time thinking about us, what we want, what we want to do, our pleasures and our desires all day long. How do I know that? Because the moment that somebody does something that you don't like in your life, you, how could that even happen? This is, do they know who I am? I'm important. The world revolves around me. You should all be serving me in my way. You're like, I don't feel that way. But when you start to get irritated, it's because you believe that you should be treated in a different way than how you've been treated. How do I know? Go drive down Highway 5. Just go do that. How dare they get in front of me? How dare you get behind them? I don't know. Like... <laughs> What are you doing? Like you, because you believe that it, we, at some level, that it revolves around us. We, we, it's like we act at times that we're the star of this movie. And that everything, like we have cameramen following us and they want to see every detail. We have guys with the boom mic so they can hear every word that we say and how we interact. Like, well, of course I'm important. And of course you want to know what I'm going to do next. Or I'm going to solve this problem. And we act like we are the star of our own movie called Life. And that everyone wants to know what we're doing. You're like, well, not me. I just, I laugh. I just look at social media. Don't tell me not me if you post the things you post on social. Like, I care about what you eat if we're sitting down together at a restaurant. Like, I want to know if your meal's better than mine. But I don't care about your bologna sandwich that you had for lunch that you just posted. I don't care about the video of the mac and cheese that you made that's so great on some platform. I just don't care. Like, but we do that. Why? Well, everyone wants to know what I'm eating. 
Everyone wants to know what I'm thinking. Like, here's how I fold my clothes. I don't care how you fold your clothes. I don't give a rip about that. But yet we act in such a way because we get mad when we don't get the views, the likes, the thumbs up, and the comments, right? Well, why don't they want to know about it? You see, this life, this world that we live in, the history that we've experienced is actually a giant movie about a God who saves these rebellious, disobedient people that think they know better than him, that are so far gone from messing up their life that he realizes that they are dead without him. And so he pursues them, chasing after them to draw them in. It's a giant story about a needy, broken people and a hero. And the hero is Jesus. He's the one that comes. He's the one that saves. Everyone's focused on Jesus because his actions are about saving those that are dead and that are enslaved and that need to be saved. You know what we are? We are a, we're not even like a, a secondary character. We're not even a supporting actor. We are the person in the background out of focus that's half cut off that you can see your sleeve. You're like, that's me. I'm in that movie. Sure you are. No lines, no pay. You're just standing there. That's who we are. But we act as though that we're the stars and it's saying, no, God is the star. He is the one who's in control. We are helpless without him. And as James starts talking about this giant God, this, this savior that everything is about, he then says this contrast to who we are in the universe. Now, um, when I was a kid, uh, I lived in some areas that were cold. And one of my favorite things to do when it was cold is to go outside and do one of two things. One is to act like a dragon. <sighs> Foam with Look at all the fire coming out of my mouth, right? You ever do that as a kid? It's cold. You breathe fire. Or if you're like, when I was really younger, I'm like, here's a stick. It's a cigar, see? And you'd like smoke a cigar. I'm like, that didn't make a lot of sense. But it was crazy. You'd blow this out and then it would just dissipate, right? Well, what is James saying? He's like, that's what your life is like. That's who you are and compared to the God of the universe. You are a mist, a, a vapor. It would call it smoke. And there's some things that we can learn about what he is saying. The first one is this. Your life is a mist. Your life is short. God willing, we only get around 100 years, give or take, Right? Like, we just don't get that much time. In the grand scheme of eternity, it's nothing. In the grand scheme of the history of the world, it's just a blip. Like, we, we just aren't going to live that long. The second thing is that it's fragile. Like, the idea of, of mist in the air, it's like any subtle wind will make it go away, right? Like, you just got to be careful around it. I, I just, I find it so crazy. The things that we do... And then you could fall off of a curb the wrong way and hit your head and be dead. That you could have an aneurysm and be gone like that. That you could choke on something. That Go about 20 seconds without air and see how your life responds. Like, Do you realize how fragile we are as human beings? Yet we think that we're invincible all the time. You're a mist. And here's the other thing. It's not in your control. Like, you can't be like, oh, there's the mist. I'm going to put it in a bottle and put it in a jar, and that's my floating mist jar. No. Even in the jar, it'll go away. You can't control it. You can't hold it. You can't contain it. 
You don't have the ability. And what he's starting to lay out is exactly who God is. He's, he's starting to lay out the sovereignty and the power of God. The Dictionary of Theological Terms says this about the sovereignty of God. The Bible presents to us the God who reigns, who is in control, and who is not bound or limited by the dictates of his creatures or by the circumstances of time. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the sovereignty of God. He does what he wants, how he wants, when he wants, the way he wants. Because he is in control. And James needs us to understand that God alone is sovereign over all things. He holds the universe in the palm of his hand. He controls life and he controls death. And he does it justly and perfectly. He, is, he has providence over all things. He is in control. See, we don't understand ourselves. And we clearly don't understand who God is in retrospect to this. As I was thinking about an interaction between God and man, there is one that really kind of leapt off the pages of the Bible this week, and it's in the book of Job. If you know the story of Job, Job had a really rough go, and God was going to show his faithfulness to him through the life of his servant Job, as the devil's going to try to throw everything at him to get him to deny God and curse him and reject him. And so we have all these verses going on. All these chapters and this point after everything's going on and, and basically Job just starts asking God some questions and it's kind of like, hey, why this? Why that? Like kind of like, you know, the way you ask questions, but you're not really making it. It's more of an accusation, not a question. You, know, you ever done that? Just me? Great. I'm a horrible person. And in verse 38, God's like, oh, I'll, I'll, oh, I'll answer you. I, I would be more than happy to answer you. And for the next two chapters... He takes Job to school. He's like, oh, you, you want to have a talk? You want to have a big boy talk, Job? Let's have a big boy talk. And he says this, starting in chapter 38. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Verse 12. Have you commanded the morning since your days begun and caused the dawn to know its place? Verse 16. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Verse 17, have, you, have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Like it, and this goes on for two full chapters. Were you here? Were you there? Can you do this? Can you do that? What's he doing? This is who I am and this is who you are. And then Job is going to respond to that. After two chapters of hearing that, he's like, here is Job's response. Chapter 40, 3 through 5. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. He's like, I get it. Let me shut up. That's the Pastor Price translation. He got it. He, he understood it, that God, you are huge, you are mighty, you are magnificent, and I am of small account. Who am I to even speak out against you? There's this book. Um, I used to pick books based on how thick they were, and the smaller they were, the more that was going to be on my reading list. And so I found this book. It's so small. It's like 117 pages. I'm like, I can do that, maybe in like five, six, seven settings. And so I could totally do this book. 
And it's a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. Um, and I remember reading the first page, I'm like, I picked the wrong book. <laughs> it's too hard. This book is really the idea of understanding who God is, that we would grow in knowledge of who God is. And for 23 chapters, he talks about the character and the nature of the God that we say we know and that we worship. He talks about the Trinity, his divine attributes. He talks about his self-existence, his divine omnipresence, his wisdom, his Godliness, his justice, his mercy, his grace, his love, his holiness, his sovereignty. He just goes down the line and he wrote it. And at the very end of his introduction, he says, this is why I wrote this book. It says this. It's my hope that this small book may contribute somewhat to the promotion of personal heart religion among us. And should a few persons by reading it be encouraged to begin the practice of reverent meditation on the being of God that will more than repay the labor required to reproduce it. He was living in an age where people didn't understand who God was. And his desire was that they would know the God that loves them, that pursues them, that cares for them. And I love that, like, love is like the, one of the last three chapters. Like, out of 23 chapters, like, yeah, we'll get to love. Why? Because you don't understand how great the love is until you understand how great and mighty the God is that would actually even extend love to us. And this is what he says. His very first, his very first line, after his, he has a prayer before every single chapter, and his very first line in the first chapter, what he says is this. And that's always like, like I'm going to grab you, I'm going to get you. What does he say? What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because how you view God is how you will live your life, how you will organize your life, what you will say with your life, what you will do with your life. It's exactly what James has been saying nonstop the entire time we've been in this letter. Now, here's the thing. A.W. Tozer was a brilliant man, and he says, this is my dumbed-down version of, of talking to you. And I'm like, well, I am really dumb. But here's the thing. We wanted you to have this. We wanted you to be able to read this. So you would, I know pastors, every year they read this book. Every single year they go through it, and they're constantly going through it so they can just always have the big idea of who God is in their mind. And so we found a free version. Hooray, Internet. It's legal, too. It's not illegal. We did this on the up and up. And so in our resource section on our website, there's a PDF that you can grab. You can throw it into your Kindle. You can throw it into your iBooks. And you can have that. You're like, but I like real books. There is a place called Amazon. And for $7, you can buy this. And I highly recommend having it in your collection. Sorry, we tried. We couldn't get it in time. Great book. But I think it's something that we need to have in the forefront of our mind that we need to understand. Who is God? Who are we? I don't know if you've caught on to it. I, there's a lot of phrases that I say over and over again all the time. And one when I refer to God. You ever, you ever hear or realize what I say about God? I say the God of, anyone? The universe. I say it all the time. It's super intentional. He is the God of the universe that holds everything in the palm of his hand. He controls all things. And yet, he's also simultaneously my father in heaven. But I won't understand how amazing it is to have a father in heaven unless I understand that he's the God of the universe and that he would come and he would know me and he would care for me and he would die for me and he would show me his grace and mercy 
It is the most humbling thing in the world when you see someone like God that would interact with people like us. He's saying at times that we make these plans that will never come to pass. I have sat with people dying on their deathbed, and I always hear at some level, there's so many more things that I wanted to do. But they couldn't because they ran out of time. So what are we to do? What's the solution? What should we say? If you look at how this is framed up, he starts this section with this idea of like, um, you who say, that's how he starts off the entire section, and then all the way down he says, but you ought to say. So he says, here's what you say, here's the problem, and here's what you should say. Meaning he's giving us correction of our words, even more so he's correcting our heart because what comes out of the heart are the words that we speak, right? He says this, if the Lord wills is what he says. He's not talking about pious talk. He's not talking about a tagline that you put on the end of everything so you get like, God will be mad at me. Oh, if the Lord wills, people would say, I'm going to get the mail and I'll be back in a second. If the Lord wills, you're going to get the mail, man. Like, I get it. Like, it's, let's not make it over-religious. But what he's saying is this, is that his plans take priority. That's what he's getting at. That the Lord's will is above your will. I think that there's not probably a better picture of this than in, in Luke 2. In, in Luke, sorry, Luke 22, 42. Jesus is in the garden. He's praying before he goes to be sacrificed. And he says this in verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Never, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. What's he saying? I don't want to get beat up. I don't want to get flogged. I don't want to be spit on. I don't want to be ridiculed. I don't want to be stuck on a cross. I don't have nails go through my hand. I don't want to die. But not my will. Your will, because your will is perfect and right. It is what is going to buy the salvation for the world and is the best thing that we could possibly have. So I will submit willingly to what you want for my life, Lord. So your people will be saved, so your name will be glorified, and you will be lifted high as a loving and kind and generous God. So the problem's not planning. That's not the problem. It's planning in the absence of God. It's forgetting God in everyday life that we walk around all day long and we forget about God and everything we do. I'm going to do this and I'm going to go here. I'm going to live this way. I'm going to do this thing. Then we're like, well, something went wrong. God, help. Or God, it's your fault. Like, that's when we start to acknowledge him, right? Seeing that everything that we do, the planning should be done through the lens of the Lord's will and what he would want for us. In Proverbs, it tells us, Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. He is the one that will make all of these things happen. How in the world does this bring us any comfort? Like, I am highly uncomfortable right now. How is this good news? Because whether bad things happen in your life or whether good things happen in your life, it is all the grace of God to you that you are breathing right now. We deserve His wrath, His punishment, 
his judgment for being a rebellious people. But yet every moment he lets us live, he is showing us his grace. That it's, it's not about me trying to control the situation and my own strength and my own ability and my own intellect and my own power and my own uh, you know, determination. I'm going to fail, right? I know my shortcomings. I know my, I'm not going to be able to do that all that I want to do. And it's not dependent on somebody else who has control over me that may not want the best things for me. But it's in God's hand. And all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God who knows the best thing for me in every single situation to grow me, to love me, to keep me from harm because he knows exactly what's best. Especially when I don't understand and think it's not good. Why? Because I know the character of God. I know who he is. We learn about the character of God. We read about the character of God and we know who he is. And so we can say, in light of who God is, which is a loving God that should pour out his wrath on us for being rebellion against him, that he should have turned his back on us. He should have rejected us. He should have forgotten us. But because of his great love for his people, he sent his son to die in our place to become a substitution that we would have life, that when we were hopeless, he brought us hope. When we were unlovely, he made us lovely. His love is not predicated on my current circumstances. You know why? Because he took care of the greatest problem that's ever existed in humanity and the greatest problem that's ever existed in my life. He has saved me from sin. He has saved me from death. He has saved me from hell, and he has saved me from the punishment that I deserve. That is the character and the nature of God, and that's the one that I want in control of the world. That's the one I want in control of my life. That's the one who knows what's best. And what I love is that any man or woman who would call upon the grace and the mercy of this God can be saved. He can give you a new life. He can, he can take your old heart. He can give you a new heart. He can take the rejection, the guilt, the fear, the shame, the anguish. He can take all of that and give you a new life. You could call on him today and be saved and know that you are his forever and ever. But what it says is this next verse in 16 is so sad. It says, but as it is, we boast. As if you are in control and you are in charge and, and that God is nothing more than a foolish idea for ignorant people that don't know science and aren't smart enough to do math and aren't determined enough and aren't hard enough workers. Boasting in self is void of God. It's not only void of God, it's, it's void of his very existence. And it's ultimately focused on you, which James has been attacking over and over and over again. And it destroys everything that God has saved us to. He says that this is arrogant. This is a word that can be translated as the pride of life. There's another section where it's used, this same word, in 1 John 2.16. It 
It says, for all that is in this world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. He's saying, do not love this world and the things in this world. If you love the world, how can you love the Father? He says, this is evil. It's the opposite of righteousness. God is righteous. All righteousness flows from Him. How we use our time and how we plan is a reflection on our belief and our faith in God. You need to understand that. And what James is saying is, if you, has your planning, has your time been transformed by the gospel? Or does it just look like the rest of the world and how it functions? And then we get to verse 17, which, let's be honest, feels really out of place. It's like, what? I mean, just, just read it. He says all this stuff, and he's like, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it's sin. You're like, what? But if you understand the context and what he's just said, it actually does make sense. In 1 Corinthians 7, 22 and 23... It says, for he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let, there let him remain with God. Now, different translations bring this up a little bit differently, but he's really saying this. If you're a Christian, you are now under the authority of your new master, Jesus Christ. You had a master before. You're always going to have a master. It's either going to be sin or it's going to be God. You can decide which one that's going to be, but you can have one master. Saying you had an old master. That master wasn't really helpful. It caused death and separation. It caused you an eternity separated from God. It was not producing the fruit in your life that you wanted. That was sin. But now we have this new master. He's a good master. He's a loving master. He's a sacrificing master. He is a serving master. He is a kind master. He's a powerful master, and his name is Jesus. See, Jesus told us what our life should look like. He told us what the game plan was for those that are called Christians. I mean, the first time that he talks about it, James even mentioned, right? You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength. The second is like it. You shall love your brother as yourself, right? We know that one. He's even talked about that in this letter. But then just before Jesus leaves, he gives us this verse so we would know what we ought to be about what we should be doing. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing me in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I'm with you always until the end of age. So the staff went to a retreat-ish kind of conference this week, and there was a guy, one of the main speakers, talked on this idea. And he gave this really horribly terrifying stat that in the church, only 51% of Christians know what this is called. The Great Commission. 
to what we're called to do. And he says, even out of that, there's like 17% that could barely tell you what it says, even though they know the name of it, let alone where you could actually find it in the Bible. Do you realize that when Jesus left, he says, this is what my people are going to be about. This is what they're going to be doing. That we are going into all the nations. We are baptizing. We are teaching them and following him. That's what we're doing. That's what we're to do. Like, I talk to people all the time. They, they're always like, oh, I want to know God's will for my life. I want to know God's will for my life. And I'm like, well, what are you talking about? Like, well, you know, what I should be doing. Like, who I should marry. Where I should go to school. Like, what car I should buy. I'm like, well, let's just reel that back a little bit. We know God's will for your life. We call it the general will. It's the two verses that I just quoted. That's the general will that God wants for your life. And as I'm talking with people, especially young people, when they're trying to figure out where they want to go, what they want to do, I'm like, stop trying to figure out the specifics and then go to the general. Focus on the general will of God for your life. And you know what ends up happening? All the specifics work themselves out. As you're doing what God has called you to do and submitting to Him, He lays out all the plans He has for you. And you can hear Him and understand Him. And His voice becomes so clear. And the little nudgings of God move you in the direction that He wants you to go. What's safe and good for you? My question is, does your calendar reflect the mission from God in your life? Does it? Or is it just about your life and your passions, your desires, and what you want? See, this verse is telling us that you're committing sins of omission. Like, can you, it's so weird. Like, we think of like sins are things that we do, those are sins of commission. But we're talking about sins of omission, meaning that you can sin by doing absolutely nothing. I'm like, well, I'm really good at doing nothing. You might be sinning. Like, that might be in your life. Like, what do I mean? Like, doing good, living a life full of righteousness, bringing glory to God, showing His love to someone you don't want to, forgiving someone, caring for the needy, being a light, sharing your faith, praying, praising, and worshiping God. You can literally sit there and do none of those. Like, I will just, no, not going to do that. And that's what he's trying to get at. Like this idea of trying to plan without God is just a sin of omission. If you know what's right to do, if you know what you should be doing as a Christian, if you know what the Great Commission is, if you know what the greatest commandment is, why are you not living that out in all of your life? He's highlighting this fracture point in their life. What you plan and what you do is void of God. You are forgetting God. And if you want this teleos in your life, you need to see God for who he is and for who you are. I wish I would have taken the time before going into the Reserve Academy to ask God, do you even want me to do this? I literally didn't even ask him how much more I could have gone without this pain and anguish in my life. How much I didn't realize that God was speaking through my not-yet-wife to bring me insight into what God would want for me. I had no idea that God was preparing me to become a pastor, to have interactions with men and women literally all over the world, to share the gospel, the most important thing that has the most tangible, eternal value over anything else in this universe. He had a plan. He knew it just needed to start asking him, God, what do you want me to do? What, what are you going to do with your life this week? Tangibly, how are you going to plan your calendar this week? Are you going to look at it through the lens of what God would want for you? Are you going to ask him, God, 
your will, not mine. What do you want me to do? And are you willing to submit to it? Are you just going to align your week with your will? Let's pray.